This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. So the National Party has made a position that we will not support the voice uh, to Parliament. This week, the National Party said they will not support the proposal for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. We believe in empowering local Indigenous communities, giving them the power at a local level, not creating another layer of bureaucracy here in Canberra. Despite the referendum campaign barely even starting, sparking a week of sparring between and across party lines. The Australian people will decide this referendum, not politicians. And I have faith in the Australian people. With the referendum slated for the second half of next year, is politics going to get in the way of a genuine debate? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor, Head of News Mike Tisher, and Indigenous Affairs Editor Lorena Allen about details and distractions in the Voice to Parliament campaign. It's Friday, the 2nd of December. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Hi. And good morning, Lorena. Welcome. Thank you. The Nationals announced this week that they were not going to support the referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Was this a surprise, Lenore? Um, in terms of process and substance, yeah, it was a surprise. I mean, the government hasn't really fully outlined its plans yet. The debate is only just starting. The process is only just starting. So in that sense, it seemed extremely premature to come out with just a blanket, no, no way. I mean, it even seemed premature, it turns out, to some National Party MPs. But if your aim was purely political, to get in first, to derail things, to try to sort of throw a spanner in the works before the debate really got going. You know, people with opposing views of goodwill could actually discuss things. If you if you really wanted to just kind of push that all out, then in that sense it did make complete sense. And I think that was really appeared to be the motivation to kind of get in first and cruel the pitch. We'll come to whether it has been derailed, but Mike, can you just like step us through exactly what happened this week? In fairly straightforward terms, well, after the Nationals said going to be a no on the referendum, some in the party said, well, that's news to me, <laughs> Andrew G, one of their MPs, and the whole WA part of the National Party said, we're not on board with that. Um, there are other noises around from various other people, which wasn't a great look for David Littleproud, the leader, I don't think. And then there was a sort of really unseemly exchange of views between Jacinda Price, who had made comments about Linda Burney, and then Noel Pearson went on uh, Iron Breakfast and gave a sort of passionate but also pretty intemperate interview. Jacinda's a very compelling figure, um, but she's caught in a vortex a celebrity vortex that's very compelling that gets her out in front of people and it gets a lot of cheers. But it's also a redneck celebrity vortex. And quite made some more quite personal comments about price, which I think not a great look for the whole process, uh, regardless of whether you agree with his views or not, or hers. I guess it kind of devolved into politics as normal in a sort of 
confrontational, adversarial kind of politics. And that's the opposite of the way that the Yes camp wants to run things, right? They want to rise above politics, make a grassroots case. So to that extent, I guess it was a successful manoeuvre by the Nats. To use a football analogy, it was a bit of an own goal by the Nationals' leadership because, as Mike said, it backfired within 24 hours. There were senior Nationals uh, saying, well, we don't, we support the voice. And a lot of people who in the National Party who thought that this work had already been done, that there was broad bipartisan support for a voice to Parliament, and this really upset that assumption. Where does this leave the voice? Uh, well, I think it's in it's in fine shape. I mean, it was an unpleasant week where a lot of rhetoric was bandied about. A lot of questions were asked that the Uluru campaigners felt had already been very comprehensively answered. But I think ultimately there's a broad community support for a voice. People will be able to get informed in the next 12 months. I understand there will be a civic education campaign. So people will be informed. The government keeps promising that that will take place. So I don't think that the voice itself has been damaged. But what has uh, occurred is that the Nats have really put a lot of pressure on their coalition partners to declare what their intentions are. Maybe it's a little premature, but it's a sign of how heated the political debate is going to become next year. And we always get told that if there's not bipartisanship or if there's not broad political support for a referendum question, then it's very hard to meet that double majority and, you know, and get a referendum through. I mean, I tend to agree with Lorena that in this instance, there is broad support, there is goodwill. I don't think we should overstate, you know, it's not all doom and gloom because the Nats sort of jumped the gun and said we're opposed or some of us are. But I do think that having a no case that's really playing the politics of it rather than engaging in the substance of it, it does make it harder. I think it does make it harder to make the case. It makes it harder to get the detail out to people across the noise. I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we said it doesn't make it more difficult. Lorena, there is some genuine concern and questions being asked by Aboriginal communities about some of the detail. Can you explain what some of those concerns are? There, there is, and you, you're right, there is resistance in different Aboriginal communities to the voice to Parliament, what it represents. There's people who think it doesn't go far enough. As an advisory body, it's not enough. If you listen to Lydia Thorpe, the issue of Indigenous sovereignty is not addressed at all by the Voice campaign. They they want a treaty because that recognises the equality of the Crown and of the sovereignty of, of the First Nations of Australia. So some people who have those concerns, like Green Senator Lydia Thorpe, want the treaty first, whereas this process is the Voice and then treaty. That's right. So they, they're not saying there's, there will be no treaty, but a treaty is an incredibly complex instrument that takes decades to, to organise and, and to negotiate and then to hold people to account over. So it's it's a very long-term piece of work and the voice is some is a way of surfacing Indigenous views that we don't have now. And the thing that, that struck me about the arguments about the voice this week, they just underscore the need for a voice because the people who were talking weren't the people who are going to be most directly affected by the creation of this thing. And the voices of Indigenous people who've spent years developing this um, campaign were drowned out by party politics. I mean, the confounding thing about what happened this week is that the line from Jacinda Price and the Nationals was exactly the opposite of that truth. It was, uh, we think this is all just being imposed on people by the elites and we actually, you know, we're representing the grassroots view. Unfortunately, this voice model 
is about empowering the elites. It's about a transfer of power and nothing more than that. I guess my fear is that can be quite a powerful line if it taps into all kinds of resentment. As I said, it's not it's not true. This process came up through a whole lot of consultation and you know, when you read the reports, what is envisaged is local and regional voices and then, uh, you know, then the voice as an advisory body. It is a representative process. But if you haven't got that detail, just saying, oh, this is the elites imposing it on people, that is a powerful line that needs to be set aside. And just to address that, I think um, people in Jacinta Price's own electorate have spoken up this week Aboriginal people in her electorate and said, well, that's not true. This isn't the elites. This is us. These are these are people in your electorate. We have met. So, for example, the Central Land Council have said they've got 90 elected delegates who represent all of the traditional owners of Central Australia, all of whom are in Jacinta Bryce's electorate. They had dozens of meetings. They were participants in the regional dialogues. And at Central Land Council meetings ever since, they have passed resolutions in support of the voice. So he was really frustrated with this assumption that it was the elites who were making these calls and that uh, that they had not been heard. He said, well, this is us. This is, we are telling you what we want. Mm. How often do we have to say it before you're going to listen to us? And Ken Wyatt, the former Liberal MP, was interesting this week too. He told RN Breakfast that he had actually brought a proposal for a voice to Parliament to Cabinet previously. And it's pages 15 to 19 which spells out the principle-based approach, the scope, how does it work in practice and what are the steps do we need to do to get there. Now, I took this report to Cabinet twice. So people who were ministers at the time would be fully aware of this report is this detailed discussion just a distraction? It's an obvious argument to make for people who are opposed to the voice, I think. But while the question that's going to be put to the referendum is broad and necessarily so because you don't want to put too much detail into a referendum question until the practical details of how it will work are filled in, will people feel that they haven't been explained to them properly, which I think is genuinely the case. People who haven't necessarily engaged in the detail of it so far, still are not necessarily aware of how it will work in practice. And that's an obvious political argument to make. If you don't understand it, how can you vote for it? Yeah, and I do think that we are in a sort of slightly dangerous period in terms of this question about detail. So the government is saying, look, there's the report from the co-design committee, there's a report from the parliamentary inquiry, and that should give you a pretty good indication of how this thing is going to work. But they haven't and can't really say yet that's exactly how it's going to work because they want to try and get as broad a political consensus as possible. And also because ultimately it's going to be up to the parliament, you know, and that's the counter to the whole claim it's a third chamber you know ultimately you enshrine it in the constitution and then the parliament decides the details so they're sort of in this catch-22 situation about the detail yes really you can sort of see how it would work but there's wiggle room in there for a reason and for the next little while there's going to be a bit of kind of political argy-bargy and almost deal-making going on to try to kind of keep as broad a political church as possible. And that could look like something that's being imposed on all those people who were who were consulted to come up with the design of the thing. So I do think this is a tricky period to manage politically. And Lorena, is it worth recounting just how lengthy and consultative the Uluru Statement process was? Because a lot of people may not um, understand how that worked. 
Yeah, so the campaigners would say this is 15 years in the making. John Howard said that there should be some form of recognition in the founding documents of Indigenous Australians. I don't think he anticipated anything like this, though. He wanted some sort of broad gesture. Then that was taken up by the, the Abbott government and it's been under construction ever since. There's been any there's been seven different reports and investigations into constitutional recognition. The Uluru dialogues came out of that. At Uluru in 2017, all those delegates came together to sign the statement from the heart. And from there, it's been quite a clear campaign. It's been from their perspective They have declared what it is that they want. They want a voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution, followed by a Makarata commission, which would oversee a process of treaty making and truth telling. And those are the three things that they have asked for. That ask has not changed one iota in that entire time. There's been debate in the Aboriginal community, as I said, about whether that is the right way to go, but the people are coalescing around this. There have been, as I said, at least seven Uh, reports to various governments over time on constitutional recognition. And the report that Ken Wyatt said we should all read page 16 and 17 of was the most recent that was given to the Morrison government in 2021. I mean, it's a sign of his frustration. He doesn't often, I don't think I've ever seen him really that upset about anything. He's always been very calm, so clearly frustrated and said on Radio National this week, read the report. He said, I've handed it to Cabinet twice. And then hours later, Peter Dutton was in Parliament asking those very same questions. How will the body interact with with the closing of the gap process? How will the government ensure that the body hears from voices who don't already have a platform in Australian public life? Is the body purely advisory in nature or will it have decision-making capabilities? I think I agree with Lenore. I mean, for me, I can. This is a political um, act. He does know the answer to those questions. What he's ta- he's talking to Australians to sow the seeds of doubt. Sowing the seeds of doubt in that way is sort of a classic way to knock over a referendum proposal. I think you push and push and push for more detail and say, oh, it's a blank check. Then you get more detail and you kind of pick the detail apart. And then in the end, you say you have to vote no because if you don't understand it, don't vote for it. Like. You know, I'm not suggesting there are not arguments against this. There are not valid arguments. There are. But I guess what I would like to see is a proper good faith discussion of those arguments rather than a politicised discussion around the arguments, not actually addressing them. For example, are the Nationals saying they don't want Indigenous representation? Like, do they think that's a bad idea? It's hard to understand how you could think that that was a bad idea or that having people consulted on policymaking would, what, create worse outcomes? You know, like mm. I, I, I would really like to hear them and their views about the actual question. The other argument they made was that it's purely symbolic. Money should be put instead into so-called practical measures to, for example, uh, make more progress on closing the gap targets, which is, A, you can do both. There's nothing in the voice that prevents all that other work that uh, my well, it would help, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's hard I mean, to that, see the how idea it would is help, but also like they've just been in power for <laughs> a and decade. Also, yeah, and, and also those nationals <laughs> often like symbols, right? Like the flag yeah. and the monarchy. Day. <laughs> really. What was their record while in power for ten years on closing the gap, Lorena? <sighs> Hang so, on, she's saying. So to answer that pretty succinctly, for about seven years, the nationals had 
uh, Nigel Scallion as the Indigenous Affairs Minister. He's a country Liberal. He's one of Jacinta Price's Territory colleagues. As I said, he was the Minister for Indigenous Affairs for seven years. In that time, he presided over the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which was a huge fund of $4.9 billion designed to address Indigenous advantage, um, but made a series of really controversial decisions and allocated millions of those funds to the top 10 companies in Australia to employ Indigenous people. He gave millions to Crown Casino, to West Farmers, to Woolworths. He gave funds to a fishing industry group that he used to chair in order to help them fight land claims in the Northern Territory. He used the Indigenous Advancement Strategy to fund that. So when the Nationals now say they are concerned about closing the gap, you have to remember that they had an opportunity to do that with a Minister for Indigenous Affairs for seven years, and that gap didn't close. You know, the, the logic in Australia has been, as you said, Lenore, you can't win a referendum unless there is bipartisan support. But it, politics has changed a lot since the last referendum. Does it still hold true? Well, we'll find out, won't we? I think the hope is that, A, there is a broad consensus around this idea, and, B, there's a clear intention of running this campaign as a grassroots campaign uh, where people talk to other people, not as a campaign where, you know, politicians and people from on high tell you it's a good idea. It's going to be run, I think, a lot like the marriage equality plebiscite at a grassroots level. And I think that that gives it the best chance of success and the best chance of overcoming political divisions over it. Whether it succeeds or not is a whole nother question. I think I do think it's a really interesting experiment because it has been the accepted wisdom. If you don't have bipartisanship, a referendum doesn't get up. I'm hopeful that this one may may still get up, but I think it does definitely add to the difficulty. I think we've seen from the way that politics was done quite differently and successfully at the last federal election with the election of a lot of independents mm. um, building it in exactly that way from the grassroots up shows that how we think about politics over X number of years doesn't mean that that's set in stone and that it always has to be the same way, whether that, you know, and there's no guarantees, obviously, about being able to get this particular referendum up. But I think it does show that, you know, you shouldn't be trapped by the past and say, oh, because it's not bipartisan support, we can't do anything. We can never do something. I mean, it's a risk to go for it because if it fails, then when's the next attempt going to be? But Otherwise, you just, what do you do? You sit on your hands forever and, and never attempt anything. There's a whole generation of people who've never voted in a referendum. I mean, my son was two when we voted yes or no to a republic, but that, that whole generation can vote now. And this will be an interesting test of of their capacity to to think about, to care about their to the First Nations of this country. And if the question, as Albo put it at Gama, is do you support the enshrinement of a voice to Parliament in the Constitution, do you support yes or no? I think that's a simple question for a lot of young people to answer. They don't understand why there isn't one already. Like, this is a simple ask, a modest ask, as he said. So it'll be an interesting look at how young people think about the future of the country and whether they can be feel generous enough to, to vote yes. I'm worried about how ugly the race-based conversation is going to get in the next 12 months. We know with the same-sex marriage plebiscite how ugly that was and how um, bruising it was for many people um, who are still recovering from the things that they went through. I'm really worried about that for uh, our mobs going forward. But you can only hope that the Australian people 
want to deal with this, want to do something and don't want uh, us to be uh, shown to the world as this kind of small-minded people. It doesn't bear thinking about if we if the vote is no. What kind of country are we all going to be living in if we vote no? Next, are you drinking too much water? And a classic territory story that has it all. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying the podcast we make at Guardian Australia, you should check out the Guardian Weekly magazine. It's a roundup of the most prominent news stories from Australia and across the globe. And at the moment, you can get 50% off an annual subscription, including home delivery, no matter where you live. Just search for Guardian Weekly Subscription to find out more. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. I'm going to beat everyone to the punch because obviously it's the Socceroos' <laughs> great victory. Um, but what else could you not get out of your head, Lenore? For me it was um, Scott Morrison's quite extraordinary speech on the censure motion against him. There was a lot of good reporting about that. I thought Catherine Murphy's column was very good. But for me it was just the astonishing thing, the jaw-dropping thing about his speech was that he completely failed to answer the central question, like, why'd he do it? We don't know. He said, oh, well, they were the, the new portfolios that he signed himself into secretly were unnecessary redundancies. Okay, that tells us in retrospect he didn't need them. But why do you think he needed them at the time? He never said. It's still a mystery. I thought the speech was a jaw-dropping amalgam of self-congratulation and obfuscation and that I can't get it out of my head. Um, Mike, what can't you get out of your head? So I have picked a completely non-political opinion piece from our UK colleagues this week about drinking water, which was uh, commenting on a study that came out suggesting that we are drinking, well, the recommendations that you drink as much as two litres of water a day may be over the top and at least... Is that the eight glasses thing? I don't know how many glasses it is, but uh, it suggested that 1.7 might be fine. (laughs) 1.7 compared to two. (laughs) You mean seven glasses. Anyway. Stop bringing this water in the the studio. The UK columnist uh, Emma Bellington wrote a piece saying she hates drinking water. Uh, I also hate drinking what she called a cold flavourless glass of nothing. And (laughs) it was finally vindication for my anti-water views. What do you drink instead? (laughs) Well, what's tea? tea Yeah, it's (laughs) flavoured. Flavoured water. (laughs) Okay. Um, Lorena, what can't you get out of your head? Um, I'm still getting my head around this story, but but it's fascinating, the Outback Wrangler saga that's about to unfold in the courts in the Northern Territory Involve, I mean, it's got everything. It's got crocs and helicopter crashes and, I mean, the, the, the man at the centre of it, Matt Wright, has been charged with attempting to pervert the court of, course of justice. He's been accused of destroying evidence. The, the, there was a helicopter crash that killed his best mate, Chris Willow Wilson. It's alleged that Matt Wright interfered with evidence and, I mean, it's during this sort of disastrous attempt to grab crocodile eggs out of a nest. I mean, it's got everything. It's a very territory story and it's only going to get bigger. Hollywood's buying up the rights. It's a right? very Hollywood yeah. type thing. I can't, I can't get enough of it right now. And it's important to say that Wright has said he will defend those charges. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Thanks, Gabs. Thank you. 
That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ellen Leibeter, Daniel Simo and Karishma Luthria. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. If you liked it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening or leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I hope you have a great weekend. See you all on Monday.